First uh, Corinthians. Here we go, chapter four. If you have a Bible like mine, it's probably found on nine twenty-five. All right, we're going to dive right into it. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. <laughs> this then is how you ought to regard us as slaves of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent either, because it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters... I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of this saying. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Or who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. You are kings. And that without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are half naked. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. This is God's word. You can be seated. Interesting text, huh? What's going on in the Corinthian church is this. Um, you have a church that, that has put their faith in Christ, but are having difficulty shedding the world. The world has such a hold on them. And I was thinking about that this week. Um, If some of you know, I have this office that's actually on the river. And the last two weeks, the river has been quite a thing to behold. Um, It's just, it's awesome. It's incredible. And one thing I've noticed is just all the stuff that's been floating down the river these days. I mean, it's crazy what you see floating down the river. And here's the deal. Anything that doesn't have a firm footing is going to get swept away. 
and how true that is for the people in Corinth. Because the culture in which this church comes out of is a force and anyone who isn't rooted and grounded, are, they're, they're going to be swept away. And that culture is our culture. The Western culture is a force. It's a current today that can sweep anyone away. And what do I mean by Western culture? Um, I'm, I'm talking about a culture that's highly individualistic, a culture that's all about the self, what the self can accomplish, what the self can achieve, how good the self can look, how impressive the self can perform. See, in the West, there is this obsession with the self, whether it's self-expression, self-importance, self-gratification, self-satisfaction, self-promotion, self-glorification, self-exaltation. There is an obsession in our culture culture with self. And what this results in is competition. All right, who's the best? Who's the prettiest? Who's the fastest? Who's the, who's the strongest? Who's the richest? Who's the smartest? Who's the most popular? And see, then with this come the standouts, the stars, the celebrities. That's Corinth. And see, Western culture hasn't changed much in 2,000 years because we live in Corinth today. I mean, think about almost everything we do, everything we pursue, every form of entertainment today is based on competition. Who's the best? Who wins? Who outlasted everybody else? Who, Who made it to the top? And I know some of you right now are saying, come on, Rod, come on. Stop making this about the West. I mean, this is our whole world. I'm going to tell you right now, no, it isn't. The whole world doesn't live this way. Um, Living in Israel was an eye-opener for me because what I realized is that's a part of the world that doesn't obsess every moment of every day with self. They're not blogging about themselves. They're not taking selfies. Um, They just don't. Um, You're part of a family. Your family's part of a people. And your people's part of of a a tribe. And your tribe's a part of a God. And, and, And that's really the way people see themselves. I'm not making one better than the other. I'm just telling you what is. Because the culture of Corinth has swept into the church. And it's shaping this church. And the problem is really stated in, in the verses, actually before chapter 4. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. He says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. <laughs> boasting about human leaders. Um, you have a bunch of individuals who are competing with such things. Well, Paul's my guy. Apollos is my guy. Cephas is my guy. In fact, I think maybe a, a good way to understand what's going on in the Corinthian church is just think American Idol. Who watches American Idol? Better yet, who doesn't watch American Idol? I know it's losing a little bit of steam, but that's what's going on because. Here's what you need to understand. Prior to the gospel really going into the Western world in places like Corinth, the way that a person's faith would be expressed 
It would be in just everyday, real life setting. Like a person's family, person's home, person's community. But now that it's been put in the West, the way the faith is starting to get expressed is in venues like, if I could have the PowerPoint. This. Okay, now this is how the faith gets expressed. Or the next one. And I love this because <laughs> you just sit and you watch and you come to the show and you're spectators and it's a stage and an audience and how good is the guy on the stage? And maybe there's a Randy out there or who are the other judges? Well, what's the British guy's name? He's not on the show anymore. Simon. Um, and, and that's what it's turned into. This is what we call church. And see, the church was never intended to exist in a contrived setting like this. It is, it's, it's not intended to be taken out of, of real life and, and the real world and, and placed into this manipulative setting where it becomes a show. In fact, church was never really intended to be something we attend. The church is something we are. It's something we live out 24-7, 365 in the real world. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he's like, I'm not going to play your game about am I eloquent in speech or not eloquent in speech. And I'm going to tell you, pastors can play this game. We can turn this whole thing into American Idol. Who's the best? And I'll speak for my own self. I mean, I could become and have fallen into this. I'm not saying I'm above it. But the most self-exalting, self-glorifying person in this whole family. The problem isn't just always with the pastor, though, because the audience, too, they want their star and... That allows them to be a happy spectator. And spectators can then just sit back and armchair quarterback and never have to enter the battle because all they get to do is watch it. And God never intended for you to be spectators. Jesus didn't die on a cross for people to just sit in the stands. He intended that every single one of us would be pastors, prophets, priests, disciples who make disciples. And God never intended anything more than pastors to be anything more than verse 1. where Paul says, now this is how you ought to regard us. He's talking about the apostles, the pastors, or slaves. That's what we are. We're slaves. We're here to wash feet. We're here to wash Christ's feet. We're here to wash your feet. And then he talks about the secret things of God that have been entrusted to them. And these secret things of God are, are, are not what only a few privileged, super spiritual people know. The spiritual things of God is Christ crucified. It's the Holy Spirit taking God's word 
in shining the spotlight on Christ. That's the mystery. So we can understand it and live it. Now, verse 6, Paul, Paul just kind of cuts through the chase and takes them to the root of the problem. Look at verse 6. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of this saying. Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. See, people are saying, I follow this guy and it puffs him up. No, I follow this guy. He's better than your guy and it puffs him up even more. And the problem here is just that. It's pride. And I love this word for pride. Puffed up. Because puffed up is exactly what pride is. Puffed up means to be inflated. And see, that's what pride does. It, it causes us to inflate ourselves. It's, it, it's our competitive world that, that causes us to try so hard to either inflate our own opinion of ourselves or to inflate your opinion uh, uh, of me and me of you. And, and so we try so hard to prove ourselves that, that we're more than we really are, but in the end, we're really just like a big balloon that's nothing more than full of hot air. It's empty. Puffed up means empty. And we know it's empty. And see, being puffed up is, is not only empty, but it's also painful. Because I don't know if your, your, your stomach's ever been puffed up or, or, or bloated, but when it gets really bloated, if you just touch it a little bit, it, it hurts and causes pain, right? That's true for puffed up people. They're so touchy. They're so sensitive. They're always getting their feelings hurt. And listen, it's not their feelings that are hurt. It's their pride, and see, the way that pride tries to fill the, the, the emptiness and, and to assuage the pain is, is then by comparing itself to other people. People do this all the time. That's why I look at verse 6, how Paul puts this. He says, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one over and against the other. One man that I'm following is better than your man. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his, in his famous chapter on pride in mere Christianity. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. That's not what pride is. He says, pride gets pleasure out of having more of it than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. Because once the element of competition is gone, C.S. Lewis says, pride is gone. We don't become proud because we're rich. We become proud because we're richer than the next guy. We're not proud because we're good at, at basketball, but we're proud because we're better at basketball than the next guy. And Lee Strobel actually quoted Madonna from an interview she did with Vogue. Now I'm really sounding old, old right? Madonna. 
Listen to what she says, though. She says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. She says, that's always been pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. She says, this is what living on the stage does to a person. The stage. Power of the stage. And listen, it's not just people like Madonna or pastors who who live much of their life on a stage, but in our highly individualistic world, we all live our lives on a stage. Our whole existence today is lived in a courtroom, in the courtroom of, of public opinion, in the courtroom of human approval. I mean, just consider right now all the human courts right now that you have to answer to that continually are declaring verdicts about who and what you are, whether it be your family, your friends, your teachers, your coaches, your work, even your own heart. And see, these human courts continually are pronouncing judgments about you. They're constantly making opinions about you. They constantly critique you. Even your own heart at times will condemn you. And because of this, think about how often you think that you need to prove yourself and to argue your worth and to prove your goodness and and to show your value and, and to let everybody know that you're okay. And see, don't you see then how all of this just causes us to be fixated on ourselves? Where we become trapped inside of ourselves, where we're constantly thinking about ourselves and drawing attention to ourselves and and puffing ourselves up. Because the ego has an insatiable appetite for approval. It's this black hole. And it doesn't matter how much you feed it, how much you throw at it. The next day, it's empty, and you got to do it all over again. But listen to Paul in verses 3 to (laughs) 4. This is awesome. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But even that isn't what makes me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. In other words, what Paul is saying here is is really something astounding. He's saying, I'm free of all opinions. I'm free of all critiques. I'm free of all verdicts. And why is this? Well, because his identity and his self-worth and his views of himself, it's not tied in any way to judgments that are made about him. He's not looking to Corinth for his identity. He doesn't need for Corinth to say, wow, Paul, you're good. You're awesome. In fact, I love how he puts this. He says, I don't even go to myself for that. He's saying something stunning here. He's saying, I don't care what you think of me. I don't even care what I think of me. And that, my friends, is the definition of humility. Because I think so many of us just think that humility is is just thinking less of ourselves. But that's really not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves or more of ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves a lot less. It's when I can literally live my life not noticing myself or always being conscious of myself or being absorbed in myself. 
It means I stop making everything about me. I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself altogether. And see, this is why proud people are the most enslaved people on the face of the earth. Because they can't get outside of themselves. They're stuck in themselves. And everything is all about them. This is why Roger, Roger Williams, one of the Inklings, the Inklings are Tolkien, Lewis, and all these Dorothy Sayers, these people that met in an eagle and a child in Oxford and smoked cigars and pipes and, and drank a pint and uh, talked God. <laughs> and Roger Williams was one of them, and he wrote a book, The Descent Into Hell. And the, the book, the premise of the book is the descent into hell is the descent into self. That when we descend so far into ourselves, it becomes a very hellish reality. And see, this is why truly humble people are free. They're free from all human verdicts, including their own. They don't live this life on this roller coaster of what people think about them. They're free to enjoy people and to love people simply for the face value of loving and enjoying people. They're free from this performance kind of life. They're free from human approval. They're free from always trying to have to prove their goodness, their rightness. They're free from human applause. Is that you? Are you free? We live in Corinth where it's all about self. Do you want to be free? Because Paul lays out how we can be set free from pride, from our bondage to ourself. He starts this in verse 7 with these three amazing questions. First question, who makes you different from anyone else? Who? Second question. What do you have right now? Physically, materially, socially, emotionally, what do you have right now that you did not receive? Third question, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? In other words, as if you're the one that did it. You didn't get it, you did it. What's the answer to these three questions? Anything we have, anything we are today, is because of who? God. God. Stop thinking you did it. Stop thinking you earned it. Stop thinking you accomplished it. Stop thinking you deserve it. It's all God in his grace. I know some of you are saying, but you know what? I actually, I really did work hard. I worked hard for this. Who gave you your ability to work? Who put you in a place even where your work can account for something? Are you telling me today that you have something to do with the fact 
as to why you were not born in an African village with AIDS as an orphan. See, every breath we take, every single day we live, every opportunity we have, everything we possess, it's all because of God and his grace. And see, when this conviction burns in a person's heart, it pops puffed up. It pops it. And it frees us to be humble, grateful people. Now, the next thing Paul does is he addresses something that I'm not going to be surprised if some people get up and walk out. I'm totally fine with that. And just watch. Some of you actually have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what Paul is going to do is he's going to address something that's going on in the Corinthian church. They've embraced a certain kind of gospel. I'm going to call it the prosperity gospel. Here's what I mean by a prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel says that God is just another means to prop us up and make us healthy and wealthy. Because look at verse 8. By the way, Paul's actually quite good at being sarcastic. And I'm actually not very good at being sarcastic, so I'm not good at imitating Paul here. But verse 8, he's very sarcastic. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already you have become kings. That's the way how it should re- read. Already? Already? And, and in fact, already that, you, all that without us? Oh, how I wish that you really had begun to become kings so that we could actually reign with you. See, what, 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 what they're saying is, is okay, Already you're saying you're rich, already you're kings, um, and, and there's sarcasm here because Paul says, you know, uh, yes, how I wish you really were kings, so that, boy, then we maybe could be kings with you. And let me just go at, a, at it from this angle. As Christians right now, let me ask you this question. What do we possess as a result of being in Christ? What is it that we have right now, and what of it is future and not yet? Because in a big way right now, we are new, we have been made new, but we still wait to be made new. That's why we groan. We still get sick, we still sin, but we're also in him. And we wait for Revelation 21, 22, where there's no groaning and crying and pain, and there's not a day where the Kuntz family has to come up and face what they have to face. That's future. And see, Corinth, like so many Christians today, they've deluded themselves into thinking that they can experience all the blessings of our future hope right now. They want to think that they're this special special class of Christian who get to experience these special blessings from God. They get to be kings now. They get to be rich now. They get to be completely victorious now. And see, all of this goes hand in glove with their pride. It puffs them up. I want to teach you to be careful of Christians who claim this, 
who claim these special gifts from God or they possess this special corner on the market of spirituality. In fact, I don't think it's ironic that a lot of these churches also combine this theology with the stage. I've been duped into it. I've been sucked into such claims. They're tempting. They promise so much, but they're hollow. They're puffed up. And I'll tell you what, years of just life and and years of being in ministry have taught me is I don't care what people may claim. Everyone still has the same sorrows, the same temptations, the same weaknesses, the same bouts with disease, the same struggles in marriage, the same losses, the same setbacks, the same perplexities as any other Christian. And this super spiritual, super victorious, super Christian is just another form of being puffed up. It's hot air. And I want you to see how Paul shatters their pride. Look at verse 11 through 13. Embrace yourselves like a man and like a woman for what you're about to read. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. In fact, the word literally means we're half naked. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. He says we work hard with our own hands, but when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. He says, Corinthian church, you think you're rich and kings. Let me tell you what we are. We become the scum of the earth the garbage of the world. See, and this is more than just talking about two different gospels or two different perspectives. What we're talking about are two polar opposite paths, two polar opposite ways of living. One's going up, one's going down. One's becoming rich, one's becoming poor. One's about being a king, one's about being hungry and thirsty, half naked, homeless, and becoming the scum of the earth. Tell me, who does the latter sound like? Jesus. And see, Jesus didn't just give us an idea or a doctrine to believe. He gave us a whole new path to walk. And what Paul is saying is, Corinthian church, this is about a path, and you guys are on the wrong path. And I'm not going to give you a sermon to correct this thing, because a sermon being spectators, all of this stuff isn't going to correct it. I want to take this thing back to God's way of doing things, of doing church, of doing ministry. And I got a picture to show you. (laughs) I love that picture. I saw this all the time when we were living in Israel. Tell me what those sheep have. They basically have two things. They have a path and they have a shepherd who leads them on the right path. 
And see, now we've stepped out of the West, and you can just keep that picture up there, and we're, we're back into our biblical roots, because this is how God does church. This is how Christ does church. It's not in some contrived setting with a stage and an audience, and it's rock stars, but it's through that. And what's this a picture of? Discipleship. Hey, Abraham, you're, you're on the wrong path. I want you to change paths. I, I, I want you to give up your comfort and your security and your family, and I want you to walk after me. Hey, Moses, you're on the wrong path. I want you to change paths. I want you to walk to Pharaoh, and I want to be your shepherd, and I want you to walk after me. And then with my people, I want them to follow you, Moses, as you follow me. Peter, James, and John. Hey, guys, you guys are on the wrong path. You guys need to drop your nets and come follow me. Hey, Paul, you're on the wrong path. It's time for you to change paths. Come follow me. And what's the path? We know who the shepherd is. But what's the path that he's calling us to walk? Is it about becoming rich? Is it about becoming kings? Is it health and wealth and prosperity? Is that the path? Go to 2 Corinthians. Two verse 14. Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Thanks be to God who leads us as captives in a triumphal procession. You know, I think we read this and we think, yes, yes, triumphal procession. He leads us to, to, to live these triumphant, victorious lives. And, 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 and we do. But we win the way our good shepherd won. We win by losing. We, we get life by laying down our life. In fact, this triumphal procession is a technical term and it refers to those enormous victory parades that Rome would host in the city of Rome. Because here's the deal. And Rome won a big victory over a great enemy. The world was going to hear about it. And Rome didn't just put on a parade, but they put on the parade of all parades. Because they're going to show off their glory and their might. In fact, Josephus uh, says in his works, he says, I witnessed a triumph. He says, it's impossible to describe the pageantry of such an event. He said it was awesome. And here's what you had in these processionals. At the very front would be the victorious general in his war chariot. And because there was so much pomp and circumstance going on, and he's in his purple road with his wreath around his head, um, he literally had a slave in his ear whispering to him the whole time, you are not a God, you are not a God, you are not a God, because he felt like one. And then behind that would be uh, the, the, the Roman battalions and, and all their glory and all their garb, and after that would be the spoils of war carts of gold, silver, cool exotic things from the places they conquered. And then finally, following all that, would be the prisoners of war, chained up. And they're being led to the arena to die as a sacrifice to the gods. 
That's what Paul's talking about. Triumphal procession. And who's Paul in this picture? Well, he's not the one leading. He says, I'm the one being led. And so he's not the victorious general. He's not even a, a soldier in the victorious army. Paul says he's a captive in chains and he's being led to his death. And the same thing is in our, in our text here today. Uh, go to ch- chapter 4, verse 9. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those commanded to die in the arena. He says, we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Why would Paul see his life and ministry in such horrific terms? If anyone could claim rock star status, it's Paul. If anyone could rise to the top and become a king, it's Paul. Why such a gruesome metaphor? What's Paul's message? We preach Christ crucified. The wisdom of God, the power of God. And see, for Paul... Christ crucified isn't just an idea. It isn't just a sermon. Paul would say, Christ crucified, it's my life. It's the very path I walk. Christ crucified is the life I live. See, he embodies the message. And see, for people like us, where, where so much of our faith gets worked out in here, stage, audience, in this contrived setting, I think we forget that the message is actually a path that we walk out there in the real world 24-7-365. We embody it. We live it. The way Kurt did today. Because Christ didn't just preach a sermon either. Christ blazed a path and then he said, come follow me. And that's why Paul, and some people think, Paul, why do you have such audacity to say things like you do in verse 16 where you say, imitate me, come imitate me. Another place he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Basically what Paul is saying is, I'm one of those sheep, I'm following a shepherd, and I'm on the right path. And follow me as I follow Christ. And what's the path? Going up. Becoming more. It's going down and becoming less. How many of us can actually say today that we're on Christ's path? Are you walking it? Or are you you on Corinth's path? See, what we need to do is we need to leave being spectators and we need to become disciples. It's not just our world that needs disciples. The church needs disciples. People who not only can proclaim the message, but they embody it. They're walking it. 
And I love this. In, in verse 17, it's like, okay, there's a problem in the Corinthian church. Here's my, my, my 10 set series on how to deal with the problem of pride. Is that what he does? No, he says, you know what I'll send you? I'll send you Timothy. He doesn't send him a sermon. He sends them a disciple, a young kid who follows Paul and becomes like Paul. As Paul follows, he becomes like Christ. How many of us right now have a Timothy that we can throw into Corinth? Where are they? Where are the Pauls? I'm going to say something right now. I'm getting off the page. Help me, God, to not say anything too bad. (laughs) This is a general statement. But there's a generation just above me who've been coming to the theater and calling that church. And we don't have disciples who can make disciples. And there's a generation coming up and they're looking to your generation and they're saying, pour into me. I want to follow you. Where are they? Now I have to ask this question that a lot of honest people I know are asking. (laughs) Why would I ever choose that path? (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because in God's economy, we win by losing. We get life through dying. We get strength through weakness. We become first by becoming last. We become rich by becoming poor. We go up by going down. We become somebody by becoming nobody. We reign by becoming slaves. This is the path Christ blazed it. And see, if we're ever going to shatter our pride as we live in this Corinthian world that's all about self and we're going to be set free from ourselves and from, from our own verdicts and the verdicts of others, the only way is we must become sheep, sheep, who follow the shepherd on his path. And I just want to end right now by just telling you and ending by telling you about the one we follow. He is the good shepherd. He lays his life down for his sheep. And Kurt, that's why you can follow him to mail. He's with you. He's going before you. And you see how God, through this good shepherd who lays his life down, the Christ crucified. I mean, at the end of the day, there's really only one courtroom that matters, and that's God's courtroom. And see, Christ crucified means that Jesus went to the courtroom for us. He, he took our trial. He took our condemnation as our substitute. And the moment that we trust him, God imputes his perfect righteousness, his performance, so that you and I, when we know this, are free. We are free from all human courts. No condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
So then rather than being puffed up, I encourage you to be filled up. Filled up with Christ crucified and walking his path. Let's pray. As we live in Corinth, God, I pray, God, that we would fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the shepherd that that leads his sheep, and God, that we would just see ourselves for what we are. We're We're sheep. We're sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. We're sheep that need to walk your path. Destroy all the puffed upness in us, Lord. Fill us up. Fill us up with yourself. In your name I pray.